This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Should the Muzo family name be removed from a hospital because of drunk driver Marco Muzo? And they make our lives better and we love them like family. A new Vision TV series explores the elevation of the family pet. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Here's the latest of many studies on the benefits of vitamins. After a review of 84 studies, scientists at the Northwestern University School of Medicine say vitamins are a waste of money for people who are otherwise healthy because there isn't enough evidence they help prevent cardiovascular disease or cancer. These guidelines do not apply to women who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant or people with specific vitamin deficiencies. About half the American population takes vitamins, and it's a $50 billion industry. Nearly two out of three American women aged 50 and older say they are regularly discriminated against, and those experiences seem to be taking a toll on their mental health, this according to AARP. Ageism was the most frequently reported type of discrimination, with 48% saying they suffered that bias. Discrimination based on ethnicity, race, skin tone, and weight was not far behind, with 40% reporting that experience. Media tycoon Rupert Murdoch and actress Jerry Hall are reportedly getting a divorce. It would be the fourth for the 91-year-old Murdoch. The 65-year-old Hall was previously married to Rolling Stone's frontman Mick Jagger. Their split comes as a surprise to those close to the family, according to the New York Times. It's a doozy of a mix-up. Two weeks ago, my grandmother died. I said, I'm so sorry. I know that the bride was looking forward to her grandmother being her flower girl at her wedding. He goes, yeah, all that, but get this. So grandpa was buried in his tuxedo. Grandma wanted to be buried in her wedding gown. The young man sent to get that dress didn't realize his sister's wedding dress was being kept in the same closet. He and the groom-to-be took the wrong bridal gown, and Grandma was buried in the bride's custom creation. But it all turned out for the best. The bride would have needed a new dress in a larger size anyway, because she learned she was pregnant. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week brought more tragedy for the victims of drunk driver Marco Muzzo. Edward Lake, the father of the three children who were killed with their grandfather, died by suicide. That prompted a petition signed by thousands to remove the Muzzo name from a hospital building. It's part of a larger controversy over the rights, 
to naming rights. I reached Professor David Soberman at the Rotman School of Management. I fully understand the position that um, the people are taking, but I also think we have to understand that the name um, is associated with the family and it's not necessarily associated with the person that did the heinous act in 2015. This is not the only instance of this. A much bigger example is uh, the Sackler family, whose company produces opioids. Well, their names are being taken off a lot of buildings in the United States. Absolutely. Well, I think um, this entire movement um, is even broader than that. I mean, we have a movement that perhaps started in the United States with trying to have um, statues of Confederate um, military figures and politicians removed from squares. We even saw this, we've seen this in Canada now with Sir John A. Macdonald statues being removed from parks, like in my hometown, Kingston, buildings being renamed, universities being renamed. Anytime the name is associated with something that society now finds objectionable. So there's kind of a, that, that's sort of the broad context for this. But I think when you think about it, you have to sort of ask two important questions. The first is, is the person or individual who actually made the donation or who is involved in having a building named after them the same as the person who actually did whatever it is we think is horrible. And the other is, is are the so-called ill-begotten gains from um, whatever activity it was, are they you were they actually used in order to get those buildings named after them? And so I think that when you sort of think of it in that way, it can give you a better framework for assessing whether these claims are valid. The question is how they made the money that is allowing them to make these donations, because making donations is a good way to kind of clean your name and get into society. Yeah, I'm not sure that making donations is a good way to clean your name. I prefer to think of it as a way of doing something good. I mean, if the donations are being used to clean your name because you did things that were bad, I think that's um, perhaps a cynical viewpoint of why people make donations. But I mean, I think that is why people have such concerns with the Sackler family, because they became extremely wealthy through the sales of drugs through Purdue um, Pharmaceuticals which is their company. But as we know, they employed many practices and approaches to selling these drugs that led to huge problems with opioid addiction. So their wealth came directly from those activities. And that's why a lot of people have a big problem. Now, if you come back to our local example, which we're talking about, the bottom line is that as far as I could tell, it was his family and parents through the success of their business that made donations to various hospitals and buildings. And so they don't really have a direct relationship to the person that, uh, you know, killed people from drunk driving. 
part of the argument is almost that triggering that when people would see that name, that's what they would think of. I understand that, and, it, and that's certainly emotional. But I also think, too, that this goes to this argument that we shouldn't um, tar everyone with the same feathers that has the same name. The people that are actually responsible for these horrible things should pay the price, and they shouldn't have things named after them. But that's very different than members of their family, especially when the money and the donations were made long before the actions even took place. Let's get to the practicalities of this. Uh, Naming rights are one way that uh, hospitals and other types of public institutions get a lot of money that they need. Uh, And would uh, taking a name off, would that, you think that would adversely affect the ability to do that? That's an interesting question. And so, you know, we often look at the direct effect. If you take the name off and part of the contract that the family has for the donation is having um, their name on the building, then it could be that in that immediate, in the the sort of the immediate months following removing the name, money would have to be returned to the family because, I mean, these sorts of major donations are conducted through very careful legal contracts. But your your question is really interesting, which is if there's what's called a knock-on effect, and this affects the willingness of people to start putting their names on buildings and making major donations, especially to hospitals and universities, that would be a bad thing. Because as we know, um, the cost of health care, the cost of education is going up all the time and faster than inflation. And one of the ways we try to cushion the blow that the government has to finance is through donations from wealthy people. And so if you sort of make this less appealing to them, um, you might be creating even an even bigger problem. Anything else you want to leave us with? I just, I just want to say I, I completely understand um, the feeling of the nurses that are making this movement. There's this whole sort of psychological side of what names mean, as well as the practical side. Most of our discussion today has been about the practical side, but the psychological side is also very important. Professor Soberman, thanks so much for being with us. It was my pleasure. That was Professor David Soberman of the Rotman School of Management. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how our pets became full-fledged members of the family. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Through the years of my life, so many things have happened. Ups and downs, ins and outs, moves, children. The one constant has been the dogs. I can always depend on them. 
That's a clip from Creature Comforts, a new Vision TV series that explores the elevation of pets to full family members. More than 50% of Canadians own pets, and the Zoomers say their animal companions help them enjoy life and feel loved. I talked with the show's creator, Aaron Oaks. Zoomers were, as they were growing up, kind of the first generation where people started to keep family pets in a different way, meaning bring them more into their, their lives and into their home. People had pets before, but they were usually kind of on the outside. So they might live in a dog house or cats might be burn cats. But as um, boomers grew up, they continued to keep pets and they sort of took it up a notch, really elevating pets into being family members. And that's where most of us are today. They didn't just bring pets into the house. I mean, often they're in bed. Yep. People sleep with their pets. They cook for their pets. They buy organic food for their pets. They do any number of activities with their pets, almost the same way that you would do with a kid. You know, rally for dogs or cat shows for cats. There's just like activities. Doing an activity with your pet is kind of more important than ever. And doing it as as entertainment and relaxation. It's also big business. It's huge business. The pet industry is worth millions of dollars a year, and you can buy everything that you can imagine for pets. So there's clothing. There's a very fancy bedding. There's very expensive organic food. And, you know, a lot of the trend lately is a lot of things are human-grade, human quality. So I know with my dog, I actually test his treats because they're all made with human-grade food to make sure that they taste good. Are <laughs> you really? Yeah, no, I really do. <laughs> and they do taste good then? They do. And, you know, I used to make fun of people who put boots on their pets until I got a dog and realized, no, he really needs boots. So there's... <laughs> So um, it is a huge industry, but you know, it actually is producing a lot of things that are, are helping people and pets live better together. Pets also help people stay active. Yes, they do. They help people stay active in, um, in a number of ways because obviously you have to get out and walk your dog, but you also, if you're inside, if you have an indoor cat, can play games with that cat that still keeps you active changing litter like lots of little things that you that add up throughout a day that you have to do anyways and then some people are choosing to do more um intense things activities with their pets like agility so yes they do keep you very active and what are some of the emotional benefits of having a pet Every person we talked to when we were making the series, Creature Comfort, told us that their pets are the things that they tell their innermost secrets to, and especially in terms of their concerns and their worries. And so, you know, there's been a lot of studies that show that pets reduce anxiety and they reduce depression, but that was kind of a a really good example of one of the ways that they do that because they're an outlet for people. They also are community builders. I was surprised by the, how big that role actually was. So, you know, a number of people who we spoke to who 
for instance, had gotten a dog later in life, was all of a sudden introduced to this whole new world of other dog owners. And it doesn't necessarily have to be through a dog club. Sometimes it's just going to the dog park or walking around, you know, your block. And then that way you meet people and you start to do activities with them and their dog. What about helping people cope with difficult times? We spoke to a number of people who went through difficult times, whether it was illness or the death of a loved one, and their pet was really the rock that they had at that time that kind of got them through. And sometimes it was just having something that you need to take care of, and you know you have to get up in the morning and do, you know, feed your dog or your cat. And sometimes it was that that was the creature that they um, shared all their sorrows with or their concerns. One funny thing was one of the people in our series has um, a very naughty pet. And when this man's wife was ill, the naughtiness of the pet was kind of what was sort of funny and took the man's mind off of all the troubles around him. So they can definitely um, take you out of, you know, a bad spot in your mind. The numbers are staggering. Three quarters of people aged 45 to 54, then nearly 50 percent of people 55 to 64, and about 40 percent people over 65 own pets. I mean, that's huge. It's huge. It's incredible. They're such, they play such a big role in our life now. And in many ways, personally, I'm really grateful because my pets have brought a lot to my life. How do you think pets allow people to age on their own terms? I think they give them emotional support, which is irreplaceable. I also think that they, we, to a certain extent, under, underestimate the amount of physical activity that they provide people with, even just in terms of staying limber and in terms of, you know, flexibility. Of course, also some aerobic exercise in there sometimes too. And I think it's the motivation for a lot of people to get up in the morning and do something, to make something of their day. And so I think it helps people um, take control of their lives. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. That was Erin Oaks. Creature Comforts debuts Monday, June 27th at 9.30 p.m. on our sister station, Vision TV. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy. Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.